Welcome everyone to another episode of my uh, podcast and as my regular listeners will always know I'm always delighted to have my guests on and today is no different. Uh, today we have the brilliant uh, Daniel Hume, uh, the CEO of uh, Sataya and we are going to talk about rethinking AI. Uh, Daniel and I were talking in the, the green room, or my, my imaginary green room uh, beforehand and Daniel's got some really interesting takes on this which has even made me think about how I position having more data, better data, access to data, and what that might um, might mean. So s- strap in for this one, folks, because I think Daniel is going to um, challenge some of the thinking in, the, in, a, in a positive way. Uh, but Daniel, I always start off my uh, my podcast this way. So um, before we kind of get into it, kind of Daniel Hume, kind of who, what, why, when, where, and then we'll go from there. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I um. I have a, over 20 years ex, uh, academic experience in AI. My undergraduate, my master's, PhD, postdocs, uh, all in AI. I, I run a, a master's program where hundreds of students going out there applying these technologies to solving problems across a whole range of different businesses. And I'm currently an entrepreneur in residence at UCL, which is where I've done all of my AI, uh, where I help them take the technology and spin it out. Um, I did spin out a, a company from uh, UCL um, over a decade ago, um, Satalia, which builds um, AI solutions for some of the biggest companies in the world and we were acquired by WBP uh, just over a year ago and, and I take on the role of Chief AI Officer across um, uh, WPP. and uh, I guess my role um, there is trying to understand um, how to make sure that we're using these technologies for cool instead of creepy. Cool instead of uh, creepy, I like that. Before, before we kind of get into um, why we should be rethinking AI and the narrative around it, can you, I mean, treat me like an idiot, and trust me, that's not hard. Uh, what, what, what is AI, artificial intelligence, in in lay terms? So, so there's a whole whole lot of definitions that fly around, um, and um, the probably more popular one and um, weak one, which is getting computers to do things that humans can do. So, over the past decade, we've managed to get machines to do things that traditionally only human beings can do. We can get them to correspond in natural language like chatbots. We can recognize objects and images. And when we get machines to do things that humans can do, and because humans are the most intelligent thing we know in the universe, we assume that that's intelligence. Now, I would argue that humans are not intelligent. There are plenty of book, books out there that, that, that um, <coughs> validates that argument. So, so but benchmarking machines against humans is a very silly thing to do. But I did my master's on intelligence, actually. There's a very good definition for intelligence, which we should be using for the definition of AI, which is goal-directed adaptive behavior. Um, so that those essentially systems that are able to make decisions towards a goal, learn about whether those decisions are good or bad, adapt themselves so that next time they can make uh, better decisions. And, and if I was being brutally honest, according to that definition, nobody's really doing AI in industry uh, because most systems in, in, in production don't adapt themselves. They don't learn. And by the way, I would also say we don't need to have machine learning to have AI. There's often uh, a mistake where we synonymize these two things. And there's a whole load of other definitions out there. You'll hear things like strong AI and weak AI, narrow AI, um, even general AI and super intelligence. And, and again, I, I find almost all of those definitions useless because really we, we only, we only do one thing in industry, which is we build, we build very specific 
um, solutions to solve, to solve very specific problems. And, and over the past several years, uh, based on all of the work that we've been doing, that I've been doing, I actually think there are six categories of applications of technologies that have emerged over the past couple of decades that are a much more interesting and useful way to think about AI. Okay, awesome. That sounds all good. And I, I am guilty of uh, using those words such as narrow, general, super, singularity, all that kind of fun, uh, that fun, uh, that fun stuff. So I'd slap on the wrist for uh, for me. But that's why I wanted to get you on, Daniel, to educate myself as much as uh, my uh, my amazing audience. So maybe we'll get into those six uh, those six applications. But I, I think this segues nicely into why you are suggesting we need to rethink AI. So around rethinking AI, let's dig into that further and kind of go with it wherever you you feel we should. Yeah, I I think the reason why we should rethink it and not be using these definitions is because, again, unfortunately it gets synonymized with technology or it gets synonymized with a certain type of technologies that are good at doing a a certain thing. And and I think that what's happening is that that governments and countries are, are making poor decisions based on this noise or lack of understanding or lack of clarity around what these technologies are good and bad at. So, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies hiring data scientists, my students, machine learning experts, because it's become quite sexy over the past decade. Um, we're very good now at being able to extract insights from data. Um, in, in ways that we've never been able to do before using machine learning. But, but what we fail to realize is that by giving human beings better insights doesn't tend to lead to better decisions. Uh, and so I would argue that what we need to do is we need to always start out with the problem that needs to get solved mm-hmm. and then work backwards. Um, what are the decisions that help us make that problem, that solve that problem? What are the insights that help us make the better decisions? And then what data is required to extract the insights? Um, we, we tend, we're all guilty of this. We get excited about new technologies, new capability, and then, and then do a bottom up. Let's build data lakes. Let's hire, hire some people who have these skills and hope that that somehow drives value in our business. Businesses. And, and, and the reality is that it won't because we fail to remen- remember that what we're ultimately trying to do is solve for a particular problem uh, and, uh, and then ask ourselves what's the right technology, the right approach to actually solve it. And it's interesting hearing you hearing you talk because I just finished Tom Goodwin's um, uh, book, the second edition of Digital Darwinism, and he kind of talks through, through a different through a different kind of perspective around we're all guilty of forcing new technology on old processes rather than thinking about what is the new technology designed to do, should we even be using it? And if we are going to use it, maybe we need to rethink the process <laughs> that will actually get the best use out of the technology. And I, I reflect on you know the world of sales and marketing and where, where we are at the moment in that journey and data is the new oil seems to be coming back up again in terms of that, uh, that narrative. So you raise your eyebrows, uh, raise your eyebrows there. And also this, this promise of AI being the, the panacea for things around better forecasting or predictive marketing technology or helping your sellers do the right thing at the right time. And I've, I've been guilty of, I've been guilty about, you know, building the narrative that the analysts out there make money on let's be honest in terms of these these predictions over the next uh, next five years that if you have uh machine learning slash ai technology layered over what you're doing then in theory um that will then help you have better insight to make a better decision about something 
but ref- reflecting on what you're saying, reflecting on, you know, what are, you know, the likes of the Toms of the world are saying, is it, am I, are we getting swept up into, let's just put new tech on things without actually unpacking the problem and the root cause of the problem and yeah. taking that approach rather than going machine learning must be this or we've got <laughs> to your point, we've got to get data scientists or, or, or what have you. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. And um, maybe this is, is, a, is a useful uh, point to talk about the, the six applications. <laughs> and and um, so, so, so the first one is actually task automation. I, I know that there, there are lots of memes around the internet saying if then else then statements are AI. In some respects, you know, there are things that human beings do, basic tasks that, that can be replaced by relatively simple algorithms, whether they be um, uh, macros or whether they be robotic process optimizations, so figuring out where people are clicking and just repeating that, or um, basic machine vision or machine uh, natural language um, algorithms. We can, we can actually do a huge amount, uh, create a huge amount of value in replacing those very specific tasks with simple algorithms. They don't have to be complicated. Um, so that, that's the first set of applications and we're seeing a lot of benefit in using, using, um, uh, basic task automation, uh, automation. The second category is, um, is generative AI. So we're able to obviously now use these technologies to generate content, whether it be images or um, text or audio or video. And what we're using this for in WPP and uh, it, it is, is to augment the creative process. Um, can can we use AI to augment the, the creative, giving them new ideas that can ultimately lead to campaigns that drive more clicks? Um, they're not able to at the moment create the end content, but they're mm-hmm. they're, they're coupled uh, and and uh, with the creative uh, to to make their lives easier. Um, the the second category is um, is an interesting one, which is the humanization of AI. And what I mean by that is we're able to take a human being, which is the mm-hmm. interface. Yeah. To, and replace it by something that looks, feels, and behaves like a human being, and uh, and so much so that we don't know any different. And 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 by the way, each one of these categories raise certain ethical <laughs> questions, safety questions. So, for example, if I'm going to a website um, and I and I am I'm, I'm interacting with an avatar that, that I think is a human being, the the best thing I can do if I'm that website is to is to leverage a, a human bias, which is homophily. So we we tend to like to engage with people that are like ourselves. Mm-hmm. So if if I'm a hipster and I'm coming to a website and I want and, and the best thing that I can do is render essentially a hipster that looks mm-hmm. a little bit like me, maybe a female version of me, I don't know, um, that, that's able to, to sell me goods because it's more likely to yield a, a better result. Now, does homophily then enforce bigotry? Does it reduce diversity? These questions need to be addressed. Also, should I declare um, uh, that, that I've declared that I'm not a bot when I go to a website. Should we declare yeah. that, that we are engaging with bots? So, so anyway, this, this, the, sec- the, third, the third category is, is the humanization. So replacing the human interface by something that looks like a human interface, which raises interesting questions. The fourth category, which is, I guess, what everybody is excited about, which is machine learning. We are, we are able to, um, to, to extract now complex 
correlations, insights from lots of different data in ways that human beings have never been able to do, and then surface those insights, but also explain how those correlations exist to help us understand the world in new, new and interesting ways. So from a kind of marketing lens, they can help us understand new personas, um, identify new types of human behaviours um, in, in ways that we've never been able to do before to be able to leverage. Um, again, that, that those technologies are very, very good at augmenting human beings that can then take those insights and ultimately the ideas that is, that is they're able to make better decisions. We see a lot of emphasis in machine learning and data science. I would argue that we should probably shouldn't start there. We should start with the fifth category, which is around complex decision making. So these are actually old technologies. This is what used to be called operations research, discrete mm-hmm. mathematics, optimization. This is around complex decision making. So again, going back to this idea of, um, of, of, of staffing salespeople. Mm-hmm. So if I've got five salespeople that I want to allocate to five jobs, yeah. I, uh, I have 120 possible ways I can allocate five people, five jobs, five times four times three times two times one. Mm-hmm. If I have 15 people to allocate to 15 jobs, I now have a trillion ways of allocating them, 15 times 14. If I've got 60 people to allocate to 60 jobs, I now have more possible combinations than I have atoms in the universe. Right. Um, so, 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 um, so humans can typically solve problems up to about seven. Industry have problems with thousands, typically yeah. thousands of moving parts. What we should be doing is we should, we should be getting machines to automate. Uh, those complex decisions. So again, going back to this idea, I could use machine learning to predict that, that hipsters are going to be coming into my store, but then I need to figure out what are the right salespeople to allocate to that store to maximize my yield. Allocate, resource allocation is an incredibly complex decision making problem, probably being solved by a human being badly. So that's the fifth category. The sixth and final category, oh, by the way, the, the fifth category we're seeing a lot of benefit from. So these, yeah. these technologies really are able to move the needle. Um, and the, the final category is the, is the essentially the, extension of, of your physical self both in the in the physical world and the digital mm-hmm. world so this is um this is uh exoskeletons this is yeah. um uh, uh cybernetics and even augmenting you your digital avatar in the metaverse that will ultimately be making decisions on your behalf so so mm-hmm. those those i believe are actually the six categories we should be looking through uh, and actually they're, they're also com- combinable they're building yeah. blocks you can combine them uh, and then when i'm when i'm looking at frictions in an organization i'm asking myself okay what which of these six categories does that friction map against and then what are the right technologies what are the right skills what are the right processes to be able to then solve that particular problem my brain is just hurt, a hurting. I've learned a new word, homophily. So thank you yeah. for, uh, for that. I'll need to go figure out how to, um, how to spell that. Um, so, okay. Wow. I mean, I want to go straight to generative AI, but yeah. I'm not because of, I just, I think that's really cool. But in terms of, we, we can, we can talk about generative AI. I mean, we, we will, we, we will do, but, but I think okay. that the, it's the complex decision. It's that analogy you, you, you gave of allocating salespeople to do to do something, but that could be any employee to do a, um, it could actually be any resource that you need to allocate to uh, some sort of um, demand. It could be your marketing spend. What channel should I put in my marketing spend to maximize my yield? Anything more than seven, you shouldn't be using a human for. It could be delivering um, delivering packages. Um, so any resource allocation that requires you to, 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 to deal with, um, uh, uh, Things more than seven is probably one of these complex decision making problems. Which for the majority of my audience, I would suggest is, um, going to be in, in their, um, in their world. And I'm just 
So then what I'm trying to kind of unpack in my head is at the top of the kind of the, the hour you mentioned that we shouldn't get swayed into AI being the solution to all and this and this and this and that and machine learning and all this kind of stuff. Yes. In this category, you're saying that actually complex decision making is where this is the right place to do it. However, and again, I'm not a data scientist. I'm going to make some assumptions that there needs to, you need the data and the data needs to be good data and you, you need to have that. Uh, that question, I guess, yeah. the other end yeah. that you're trying to, to answer. Yeah. So can can we unpack that a little further in terms of what the thought process or the thought process might be to get to that to to that point? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm, I'm really glad, glad you're asking that. I very rarely get asked that question. But what you're, what I've just described is essentially an optimization problem. And the optimization matured in academia a few decades ago. Um, so, um, which is why now everybody's getting excited about machine learning. But an optimization problem has several parts. The first part is an objective function. So going back to my, uh, the, the workforce allocation problem, yep. what you want to do, your objective is to maximize utilization. Mm-hmm. is to maybe minimize travel time. You know, people driving longer distances. You want to maximize maybe client continuity. So mm-hmm. they're seeing the same faces over again. Yep. You want to maximize freeing up free time, free weeks so people can do training, et cetera, et cetera. So you essentially have some sort of complex objective function. And then you have constraints, which is people can only work eight hours a day, five days a week. This person's not allowed to work with this client because they upset them, blah, 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 blah. So you've got a bunch of constraints. Yeah. And then what you need to do is you need to make sure that you have the data to be able to satisfy those constraints. So, for example, a constraint might be people don't work on their birthdays. I need to be able to then get access to birthday data. Mm-hmm. And once you've framed, once you've framed that problem, uh, which is the, the goal that you're trying to achieve, subject to the constraints and you've got the data coming in, yeah. um, then you then solve that problem al- algorithmically. Now, um, again, human beings, unfortunately, are solving these problems algorithmically. Uh, and just to give you an example, one of our clients is PwC. Mm-hmm. They have 5,000 auditors that they need to allocate to projects uh, yeah. over the year. 5,000 factorial is a, is a big number. And, um, the, uh, uh, the, 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 used to be have 20 people in a room who's trying to figure out how to solve that math problem, mm-hmm. whose full-time job it is. Yeah. We can build an algorithm that can solve that problem in four hours significantly better than a human being. So instead of them solving that problem, what they can do now is they can run multiple scenarios. They can say, if we optimized for utilization over Find continuity, this is what our KPIs would look like. If we optimized for the environment, i.e. reduction in travel time over um satisfaction, then this is what the other case. So they can be, become much more strategic. Um and yeah, so 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 what you want to do is you want to solve those types of problems algorithmically. Mm-hmm. And you're right, you need to define what the objective is, what the constraints are, yeah. and then um and then um and then make the data better over time. And I'm just reflecting on um Time, you know who I'm talking to, but I won't mention the brand in terms of, uh, spent with them recently unpacking all of what their technology could do. And it's a really cliche, um, it's a really cliche phrase, but we don't, we don't know what we don't know. So therefore on the constraints bit, you don't know what you don't know in terms of what the constraints might be therefore you may miss a constraint because you're not aware that that's actually a constraint in the first place so how how do 
organizations then in, ensure that we'll park the data quality bit for a moment because everybody knows that's a challenge in its own right, but yeah. ensuring that to the best of your knowledge that you are accounting for all the possible constraints that might be so that you don't um uh push uh, push the button and for those of us that are old enough i don't know if I've, I've had the big bertha cartoon just pop into my head i don't know if you remember yeah. big bertha when you put something in the conveyor belt that came out on the other side you pull the big lever that all of a sudden the the, the machine is doing what you're asking it to do but it's giving an output that could then take an organization down a path which ends up being damaging or what have you sure actually there, there are three important things here one is you're you're absolutely right. Capturing those constraints completely is a very hard problem. Um, but that's where you have to work with the the client. You have to make it iterative. You build a schedule, for example, whether it be a people planning schedule or yep. some routine schedule. And somebody, some expert, will say you can't do that. You can't do that because it's their birthday and they don't work on their birthdays. It's okay. Let's have that constraint. Mm-hmm. Um, so so you, you actually just have to go through that process of iteration. And, it, and it's also often why people buy off the shelf tools. And they don't work because they only capture 70% of the constraints yeah. and they don't allow you to add more constraints. Um, uh, because yeah, so, so I, I do caution people buying up modules that, that ERPs are trying to upsell to you because unfortunately those modules probably will only do 70% of the problem. You, you typically need to, to get an organization like us to solve the entire problem. So that's the first thing is it's, 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 it's an iterative process. The, the second is coming back to the data is that you won't get the data right straight away. So going back to the PwC example, mm-hmm. um, it turns out that when you were scheduling, creating the schedules, graduates were driving really long distances to their clients. And the yeah. reason why is because their graduates would kept their, um, their parents' addresses in the system as opposed to, so, so that was that, that showed the data was incorrect and it got very, very, very quickly, um, uh, changed. And the third thing to consider is, is what you're trying to solve for. So one of our clients wanted to focus on maximizing utilization. That was their primary objective. If we can increase utilization by two and a half percent, this project will pay for itself. Our algorithms increased utilization by 12.5%. It was a massive success. But what happened is that, is that by moving the needle in utilization, mm-hmm. it caused people driving longer distances, clients weren't getting the continuity, yeah. people weren't having enough time to train. So what, what you have to do, you have to understand that these technologies are, are now phenomenal at moving the needle. They mm-hmm. really are. But but you need to understand that you're making sure that you're optimizing across a whole set of KPIs and not just one. So now utilization for that client is 4%, but travel time is down 25% and, yeah. and client satisfaction is up 3%. So those are the things you need to be optimizing for. And that's what these technologies are really, really good at. But I'm just, as you're talking, I'm just thinking there's so many people I can, <laughs> I can introduce you to in, ter- in terms of grappling with the, with the old utilization, um, utilization problem. But I think it's, it's, I, and again, I'd never, and that's why I wanted to get you on. It's that, it's the constraints bit, which I believe people just accept, accept we know what we know without necessarily thinking about those, the, 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 the anomalies in yeah. the data or the things that you don't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't consider to be a, a constraint maybe five, ten years ago because it just was what we did and that was the job. Therefore, suck it up and get on with it. Whereas we're now in a very, different hybrid world and organizations are trying to figure out how we work in a hybrid world which i guess and even with your clients is producing completely new constraints that nobody had ever considered 
Yeah, and uh, and actually, this is this again is important because it, most of the time you've got planners that have all of the constraints in their head, and some planners have lots of constraints, and some planners don't. So, getting out of their heads is important. Um, uh, so, and again, it's, it's an iterative process. Actually, I believe that we've captured the majority of the com- constraints on most consulting companies. So, we've done it for auditors, we've done it for marketing uh, companies as well. Yeah. So, so we've got a, a really comprehensive set of constraints there. But there actually is some uh, constraints that you still can't capture. So, for example, you might not religious um, mm-hmm. um, uh, leanings. You, you might not uh, have uh, be allowed to have one person work with this particular client because of religious considerations or because they're married to the same people. That you. Now, some of that data you're actually not allowed to capture. So mm-hmm. there will always be outliers that the planners are there to deal with uh, that the AI just can't solve for because it's not allowed to access the, the data. But the, the point is is that, is that you're still able to solve 99999 percent of it algorithmically. Compared to what you were doing previously and the time exactly. spent, you know, and, 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 Okay. Exactly. Thank you. That's been, um, illuminating, hopefully illuminating for, um, uh, my guests around. Think about those, uh, those constraints as, well, the data points as, cons- as constraints and what that might mean. Now, <clears throat> let's get into the fun, uh, the fun stuff. And I'm going to, I'm going to bash, we're going to bring the two, the two together around generative, generative, generative AI, um, Big kind of splash recently about Jasper.ai raising a bunch of cash now worth more than a, um, a billion. Actually, if you look at my about profile, about section on my profile, that's written by, um, uh, written by, uh, Jasper. So there's, there's that piece around content creation, but also, uh, the humanization aspect. So Synthesia is the one that springs to mind in terms of what they're doing. It's pretty clever, pretty cool, um, uh, cool stuff. But then there is the deep fake. Aspects and there's the deep fake Tom Cruise um, channel I follow on TikTok, which is just insane in terms of uh, in terms of all of that. So let's start with the I guess the the, the content creation aspect of generative um, AI, be it images, and I'm seeing some very weird stuff again on TikTok in terms of what's creating, but also the text aspects. And this is I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, we're moving to the world of kind of GPT three, Google Pegasus. All that kind of fun stuff. So how, how good is this? Where are we really on this journey? But where, where, where do you believe it might or could go? Okay. I, I think good depends on what you want to use it for. And, um, so from, from a kind of WPP perspective, we're just set out here is, is treated as a kind of WPP deep mind where we're, we're, we're building out. Technologies internally to, 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 to really push the boundaries of, of, of creating content and ultimately understanding what leads to clicks and leads sales. Yeah. And, uh, which is what marketing companies have been doing since the, the dawn of time. How do I create content that leads to success? Yeah. And I guess what these technologies are currently good at is knowing that that's a chair, that's a man, that's mm-hmm. a football. And <clears throat> I can also now type in create a picture with a man holding a football on top of a chair. Um, Whether that contains the signals that lead to clicks is a different question. When when human beings look at uh, an image, uh, we don't just see a man, a chair, a football. We construct in our minds uh, a narrative that includes nostalgia and history and emotion. Um, And and one might argue that that, that, 
construction is, is 10 times more complex than just the entities that are in that image. And so, and so what we're trying to do is, what we are doing is constructing that narrative, um, that a human being might construct and then correlating that narrative with, with success. Um, which I think is m- much deeper than, uh, than, than what, what is currently happening with these types of technologies, which is essentially being able to bring objects together in, in, yeah. in interesting ways. Um, n- n- not only that is that we are also looking at from a marketing con- uh, perspective, are there any rules, creative rules that, uh, that you can extract as archetypes for mm-hmm. augmenting creativity. What I mean by that is that, you know, in, in the reason why some campaigns are very successful is because they might contain some sort of contradiction yeah. or they might be using another dimension. Uh, they might be asking you to kind of look outside of the, the box or, mm-hmm. or they might be, um, having some sort of, um, cultural reference or some sort of comedic aspect. Um, once that narrative has been created beyond the entities that are in the image, the question then for for us is: Can you extract these archetypes? Can you con- can you determine that there's some sort of inversion happening here, mm-hmm. where the human being might be the slave for the robot, for example, which is a, a twist. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's some of the work that we're working on inside inside WPP is really really trying to get an understanding of content in the same way that humans do, and correlating that with success. And then the question is: Can you create content that contains those um those contradictions those um those um uh those um cultural references and, and we think that we can we, we think that over the next um three four five years um uh we'll be able to use these technologies to generate unbelievably interesting and new pampering explosion of, of content within wow i wasn't expecting you to say within within that that time that time frame not that you know i'll hold you to it because everything can happen yeah. in five years and then we yeah. can repeat and say it's another five years time yeah let's just let's that feels very like inception <laughs> in terms of uh, a dream within a dream within a dream um but it reminds me of a book i read uh, by eric siegel called predictive analytics um which is an amazing read and he talks around uh influence and kind of finding that that the, the the individuals that are on the margins that could go either e- either way yes no black white what have you and around the image is that you and I could look at exactly the same Nike advert but do two completely do the direct diametric opposite of what the advert is is trying to to do so what's the I'm trying to get around I'm trying to wrap my head my my tiny brain around this because I understand the 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 archetype, but is it you're all, you are almost trying to, I'm going to use the word predict, that might be wrong, but second guess what I see the images and then second guess what my buyer persona, what, me as the buyer persona, what that narrative I will then create in my head sure. to help, I guess, get to predictive or better yeah. qualitative predictive prediction of what people are going to do which is click to buy right have i got yeah. that answer that right yeah, yeah absolutely I, I think in the in the short term because because you and i will probably be seeing the same billboard we're going to have to just make a, a call in terms of the amount of type of footfall that are going to be looking yeah. at that billboard and and just just expect that there will be some people that will construct a narrative in, in a way that we probably don't don't want them to i often use the the phrase 
um, if, you know, if I told you that my laptop was sick, that, that, if it's, if you're, if you're old and boring like me, it probably means that you, it, it's, it's broken, but if you're cool, then it means that it's awesome, right? So that, that, that sound can be constructed in, in, in two different narratives. <clears throat> and, um, but in, I guess in the future future where we might have a more augmented universe yeah. uh, or metaverse, that, that content would be highly customized to, to you. Um, and so whilst we might be looking at the same space, we yeah. would have different, different, um, images shown to us. And, and this comes back to my chief AI officer hat, um, which is making sure that we're using these technologies for cool instead of creepy. You know, they, they are phenomenal, not yeah. only phenomenal at moving the needle, but they will also be phenomenal at, at getting your attention and, um, and, and, and getting you to, to act. And we want to make sure that they're not being used to exploit people. Uh, but the, we're making sure that we're getting the right goods and services that are enriching people's lives. Which um, I've got, you know, images of the, uh, the Minority Report kind of flashing to my head of Tom Cruise walking down the uh, the, the, the yeah. shopping mall and, you know, that AR experience that um, he he experiences. And I guess, you know, I guess the, the world of marketing is always trodden a fine line between between kind of date we're doing this for this for, for the consumers versus we're doing this for for us and that's you know that that, that will continue for forever and a ever and a, a a day i'm just it's just this 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 concept of well, i reflect back on would you have to say that you know, you're talking to an, an avatar which is ai generated on a website will there have to be disclaimers very very small print no doubt that actually this has been a quasi custom made for you based on the preferences that you no doubt have selected somewhere <laughs> in terms of this is what you're interested in. So the, the answer is, is yes. Um, but what's interesting there, and, um, th- this is a, this is a study that we're doing at the moment and, and validating, but we, we think, we think that we've discovered that, um, that, that human beings actually like or uh generated human beings more than human beings, which really puts an interesting question mark ar- around the uncanny valley and can you essentially create something that looks more human than than a human for you to essentially buy into that and, and engage with it um and the, and the second thing is is that if i had um if I had an, an avatar um that presented to me on the on the screen instead of there being a little thing disclaimer in the corner, would I be bought into it if that avatar said, I'm not real? And then, but this is what the conversation that we're going to have. So essentially it removes some of those, um, some of those, uh, those, 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 those barriers. Yeah, I, I, I think so, so, I think there are multiple ways that, well, multiple directions one could go with, with where this could go. Um, but I guess in certain scenarios, the person would not want the avatar to open up with I'm not real because that could then destroy the illusion that is trying yeah. to be um created. Yeah. I think people can probably infer where where this probably will go in some shape or uh, uh in some shape or um uh or form. I I guess it's 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 back to you know if you said this ten you know the this world the world generally in terms of how we make those 10 year leaps in technology and would you have said 10 years ago you could do this? No. And we found, I posted the other day, we found my father-in-law found an old cassette tape 
um, of my now wife, ironically, recording of her dance or singing at the school I was at, even though I didn't know from 1994. And you showed this cassette to my seven-year-old and my four-year-old. And we're like, what, <laughs> what the hell is that? But if we thought back then that we could do what we could do now, just in music alone, you'd have been you're off your absolute, off your absolute rocker, which is why, um, then let's, let's kind of go, go with it around kind of AR. You touched on the metaverse. There's now big debate coming out around the metaverse and meta in terms of what it has or hasn't done and the bets it hasn't, hasn't made. Um, where, and I'm assuming that that's going to have to be powered by, well, this, as, as I was saying this, I know this is a really dumb question. We're going to ask it anyway. I'm assuming this is powered predominantly by AI and machine learning. All this very, very clever, um, clever stuff. But where do, do you, where do you believe this will, will go in terms of that augmented, either augmented reality, so it's kind of the, the, the blend or full, full VR and full immersion? I think, I think, um, <clears throat> Apple's approach is probably the, the one I would bet on, which is augmented reality before full full VR. Um, but I think we will we will use those experiences in different ways. I, AR is often said to bring things to us. Mm-hmm. VR is often said we, we we are taking to play to to other to, to places. And I think that those are different experiences. I think that in terms of the metaverse, you know, there's lots of different definitions of the metaverse, and again. Many of them are probably unhelpful, but they have some kind of similar characteristics like a persistent you, mm-hmm. some sort of digital world. I think for me, the metaverse is just an acknowledgement that there's going to be a blending of the physical world and the digital world more and more um, over over the coming decades. And it's already happening and it's just going to continue um, both in you know our connected homes and, and, and once potentially these technologies around augmentation do start to take off and become more frictionless, then, then that's just going to accelerate. And, uh, and, I, and I think that, that that could open up a plethora, a cambered ex- explosion of, of lots of interesting new experiences that will, again, enrich people's lives. So I, I'm actually super hopeful and buoyant about, about, about the, the, the metaverse. I'm also, um, what, what I'm concerned about, if I'm honest, is who owns the persistent you. So I think one characteristic of the metaverse is that there is a you that exists in the digital world, even when you go to sleep and even when you turn off all of your devices. And that persistent you, it essentially logs into the different universes, whether it be your gaming universe or your retail universe or, or whatever. Now, at the moment, what we do is we log into those universes using our Google login, our Facebook login, our Apple login. And my worry, if I'm honest, is that is that if we log in to the metaverse since using those logins, it's those companies that will, that will be able to, to have access to our data that will have more and more kind of control over us. So I would like to see some sort of decentralized identity appear where mm-hmm. that, that identity is not belonged to by by any um, uh, corporate. Um, it's um, it's belonged by belonged to by you. Yeah. Um, now, whether the, what the business case looks like and things like that, I don't know. But um, but I would certainly be trying to figure out um, how we could create some sort of de- decentralized um, identity so that that, that data is, is yours and not somebody else's. And I know that Tim Berners-Lee and other people have been working on protocols to try to enable that type of um, structure. I'm glad that 
you share that that view because I've I've always in the in the back of my mind at the moment wrestling with I understand the concepts of a de- decentralization, but to your point, at the moment you you are attaching your your avatar to an organization. Even if it's not the you know the it's not the fangs anymore, it's the mangs. Um even the, the the smaller you know who claim to be we we are decentralized we're web three we're building on blockchain yada yada I'm like yeah but you're still sitting on a server somewhere which is probably owned by one of the big players anyway or a smaller player anyway so I I I, I get it and notwithstanding the whole you know what's happening in the world of crypto and all that kind of stuff and FTX and SPF and all that kind of stuff is is not helping the underlying technology is actually really good in terms of what it's it's built on that that narrative. I still struggle in my tiny mind to understand could we ever truly get to a decentralized world in the purest purest sense. But maybe so, that's for the podcast. I don't know. Well, well, give, well, give you five minutes on it. <laughs> my, my, well, my 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 forty-year plan is to try to create a decentralized decentralized world, or at least the foundations for one. So for for over a decade. I've been trying to ask myself in Satalia, how do I create a, an organizational operating system to create a, essentially a liquid organization? I think, I think there are two things I want to solve for. One is how do you create a, an operating model that allows for the, the right group of people to swarm around an innovation and get that innovation to market as fast as possible? Mm-hmm. And that means not having traditional structures. It means, it means creating the right structure according to the people and, and the innovation. And, and the, 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 the hypothesis there is if we can get innovations to market as fast as possible, um, innovation obviously often means removing frictions from things. And so what I want to try and figure out how can we remove the friction so much, which usually means human beings, from the creation and dissemination of goods like food and healthcare and education. So I want to try and create a, um, uh, a platform that allows us to get goods to market as cheaply as possible. Now, there's a concept called uh, uh, abundance. So mm-hmm. I think that there is a possibility that we could create a world where people are born into it. They don't have to pay for food, for education, for healthcare. It's all free. It's all abundant. But that requires you to remove all of the human labor, essentially, from the automation and creation of those goods. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if you can, if you can do that, then, and if you can create a platform that allows people to, to come up with new innovations, then you've, you also have unlocked people from economic constraints. So you've unlocked people from economic constraints because they don't have to work to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. And now you've given them a platform to be able to contribute to humanity how they want. I believe that we all have an innate desire to want to make the world better for each other. Most of the people I know, they don't have to work. They're not bored at home. They're not depressed. They are using their time, their energy, their their assets to try and make the world better. And, and I want to unlock as many people as possible from those economic constraints to be able to do that, which means, in some respects, trying to create a decentralized platform for, for, for the planet. Um, Satalia is a micro um, uh, uh, version of that. WPP is like bigger, which I want to scale it to 100, 100,000 people. And if we can get it to 100,000 people, I think I can get it to 10 billion. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I did not think we'd end up there, but that's why uh, I have no constraints on these uh, these podcasts other than my intellect to just allow my uh, my guests to go where um, where we want to go. That that has been, I mean, wow, what, what a place to um, 
to, I think, pause because I want to get you back on to discuss more of this maybe, you know, next, uh, next year. But, um, Daniel, if, uh, the listeners want to, um, find you, learn more about what, um, Satalia slash WPP can do to help solve their, um, AI related questions, what, what's the best routes to find you? Yeah, LinkedIn, um, or, uh, Daniel at satalia.com. You can even phone me, um, 07737 uh, but just get in touch any way you want. And uh, the eagle-eyed of you who are going to Daniel's profile will see that on his profile he has a telephone number, he has his email, and, of course, you can reach out to him through uh, through LinkedIn. If you do, and it's off the back of this podcast, please do uh, mention that it was you've listened to Daniel share his ideas, and uh, that's the reason you're getting in uh, in touch. It all, uh, it all helps. But, uh, Daniel, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you for um, educating me. It's made me think things differently but also i'm going to look at are you a human or uh, <laughs> when i get to these um uh these websites it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thank you very much alex and to all my listeners um thank you so much for tuning in uh i really appreciate it and uh, i said to daniel at the beginning of this episode i believe in fact i know i'm going to stake it on this because i know where we're at this podcast will get us across the 10,000 downloads um uh marks so daniel well done uh, but more importantly, thank you to my listeners so much listening and those watching. Uh, this podcast would be nothing without without you, so I really, really do uh, appreciate it. Uh, if you want to be on the podcast, you know what to do. If you want to recommend people to be on the podcast, you know what to do. Um, but for me and Daniel, thank you so much, and uh, I'll see you next time.